Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. I'll be reading from verses 25 through 33, which is the end of the chapter. 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33. I want to say as you're turning there that I, I want to express gratitude to the session. It's a great honor to be with you, a privilege to open God's word, of course, and to worship with you today. And thank you uh, as a congregation for the warm welcome. It's always a, a great joy to, to be in this place uh, with this with this people. But of course, the great joy is that we can open God's word and look at it together. So let's do that now. 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 25, going through verse 33. And as I read this and as you follow along, just remember this is God's word. 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Let's pray together. Our great God, as we come to your word, we come first with thanks. We are grateful for your word. We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word. We also thank you on this morning that your word is not a dead letter, but is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the sword of your spirit. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so, Father, we ask that this morning you would see fit to show mercy on us and work by your spirit in our hearts by your living word. We ask that you would convict us of sin. We ask that you would train us in righteousness, that you would thoroughly equip us for every good work. And Father, as you do all of this, we would ask that you would, by the lifting up of your word, lift up your son in our hearts. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. It may be helpful to start with a little historical context. We are in a historical account, a historical book. 
And there's a great deal that happened just prior to the verse that we started with, verse 25, even just in this chapter. It might be helpful for us to review a little bit about what's happening in this chapter. The book of 1 Kings up to this point records the kings of the whole united kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. And leading up to chapter 12, we're introduced and given a great deal of detail, actually, about the reign of King Solomon. It was during Solomon's reign that the nation of Israel's geographic boundaries reached their furthest extent. Solomon was renowned for his wisdom, for his wealth, for all kinds of great things as a king, although as the text points out to us, also Solomon's heart was led astray in his old age. In chapter 12, Solomon has died, and his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And Rehoboam does what many new kings do. He decides to try to figure out whether he's going to follow the course of his father Solomon or whether he's going to chart his own course in his leadership of the people. Rehoboam gathers together a number of advisors in this process. In fact, Jeroboam, whom we met in verse 25, is actually one of those advisors. Jeroboam had been in exile in Egypt, and he came back to counsel, to consult with Rehoboam. And the advisors give him varying degrees of advice. Some of them encourage him to follow more along the lines of Solomon's reign. Some encourage him to do things differently from Solomon. Some encourage him to be less harsh with the people. And then some of his friends actually encourage him to be more harsh with the people. And that's the path that Rehoboam decides to go down. Rehoboam appears before the people after consulting with these men, and he says, essentially, if you think Solomon was bad, I'm going to be even worse. If he taxed you, I'm going to tax you even more. If he asked for something from you, I'm going to ask even more from you. And that really causes uh, a division, a massive division among the people of Israel, and it's so bad that they actually divide now into a southern kingdom, which is called the kingdom of Judah. That's where Rehoboam reigns in Jerusalem and then a northern kingdom, which ultimately is called Israel. Now, Jeroboam, as one of Rehoboam's advisors, watched uh, all this happen with a kind of horror, and as Rehoboam makes the decisions that he makes, Jeroboam flees north and begins this northern kingdom. That's what we pick up with in verse 25. It says, Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. But that's not primarily what this text is concerned with. Jeroboam did begin to advance things militarily. He did create a common identity for this northern kingdom of Israel. He he built cities, as we learn, and there are more that he built, as we learn elsewhere. But that's not primarily what the text is concerned with here. What it actually is concerned with is what Jeroboam decides to do after this. Because Jeroboam, after fleeing to the north, realizes that he has a problem. And the problem, as he sees it, is that Rehoboam still reigns in Jerusalem and the people might be drawn back to Rehoboam. So what Jeroboam decides to do, and we'll see him do it step by step, is Jeroboam decides to create places of worship in the northern kingdom that would take the place of Jerusalem. 
so that the Israelites would no longer have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. In fact, they could worship in the northern kingdom where he was reigning. Now, I want to look at this in some detail to look at exactly what he did, what steps he took in creating these centers of worship. And we'll pick up in verse 28 with Jeroboam's actions. The first thing we see, and it is a key, I think, in this text, is that Jeroboam, in verse 28, takes counsel he, he, he gathers together advisors and he actually listens to what they say. Now that's striking because you'll remember Rehoboam brought his counselors together but by and large he didn't listen to them. So Jeroboam is, uh, superficially at least, not making that same mistake. He's gathering together advisors and he's asking them what they would counsel him to do with respect to this problem of worship. And again, superficially, we might seem to think this is a credit to Jeroboam, uh, something favorable that the text is describing. It's in contrast to Rehoboam, who is a wicked and foolish man, and it's also, it also fits with what we read in other passages of the scriptures. We know that in the multitude of counselors, there is much wisdom, and Jeroboam, in verse 28, does seem to take counsel. We also see this in verse 28. Jeroboam spares no expense in his uh, his worship, in the worship that he's putting together for the people of Israel. It describes it this way in verse 28. He took counsel and he made two calves of gold. This is not an insignificant expense on Jeroboam's part. Jeroboam spent a lot of money. He didn't just make one calf, he made two and these calves were actually made of pure gold. It was costly worship that he was setting up for the people. We also see that he has in mind a a setup that will be easier for the people. In other words, we could almost say that he's trying to make things more convenient for them. He's, He's looking to their interests, their desires, and he sets up these two, uh, these two golden calves. He sets one in Bethel, it says in verse 29, and the other he put in Dan. Now, it wasn't just that these were cities that were more convenient for the people, although they were more convenient for the people. They didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem any longer, but it actually, these were cities that uh, were, were of uh, historical significance to the people. Uh, the places that he chose, Bethel and Dan, ha- had a kind of spiritual legacy to it, at least a veneer of, of spiritual legacy. Uh, we might remember that Bethel was the city that Abraham met the Lord in, and Jacob had the same experience. And Dan, although it's less well known, and it appears in a, in a section of scripture that's detailing a low point in Israel's history, Dan is actually the place where Moses' grandson settled and led in public worship there. He presided as a priest. So we might say that what Jeroboam does is historic in its nature as well. He ties in to the history of the people of the northern tribes. You also see in verses 32 and 33 that Jeroboam uh, has a a sacrificial system. Uh, It's a sacrificial system that, like all sacrificial systems, would have been costly, it would have, uh, it would have uh, created a, a great need among the people for these animal sacrifices, and in fact, it says that he appointed this feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. 
That's the other thing we see about Jeremiah. He actually creates a calendar for worship. And it's somewhat like the calendar that the people were used to, although there are some differences that actually make it a little easier for the people of the northern kingdom. So again, he's looking to their needs, to their desires, and trying to meet those desires in his scheme for worship. Finally, we see this in verse 33, that when they have this feast, and Jeroboam presides over it in verse 33, they have a feast that, that is uh, one where, in which they enjoy warm fellowship together and broad participation. Because Jeroboam, it says, appointed priests that were not just the priests uh, from the tribe of Levi. He appointed priests, it says in verse 31, from among all the people, not just the Levites, and then they have this great feast together in verse 33. Now, if we, if we put it all out there like that and just outline the various things that Jeroboam did in this chapter, we might almost say that he's following the guidelines that many church leadership books would give. He's listening to everyone. He's He's taking counsel. He's, he's trying to make sure that he makes things as convenient for everyone as he can. He's, he, he's willing to, to put his money where his mouth is in terms of the costliness of the worship. He, he's tying it in to their history and their cultural and religious heritage. And the end of it all is this great feast that they enjoy before the Lord. But of course, you know from the text, because the text is explicit about this, what Jeroboam did was the farthest thing from pleasing the Lord. In fact, the text tells us explicitly in verse 30, then this thing became a sin. And the reason why it cites that in verse 30 is because it's highlighting the fact that not only was Jeroboam sinning in everything he did, but he was actually leading the people into sin as well. Now, why was that? Why was it so significant? Again, at a superficial level, we might almost want to congratulate Jeroboam. If he sat down with you and said, I'm going to be engaging in public worship in the northern kingdom, and here's how I'm going to do it, it might have seemed like a wise plan, but it led the people into gross idolatry and error. Well, what were the reasons for it? This gives us some clue as to why it was so sinful. Uh, the text tells us, first of all, at the very beginning, what was motivating Jeroboam throughout the whole thing. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, it says this, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me. Now what's motivating Jeroboam at the beginning at least is his own desire for power, his own desire for influence. Or we might almost say his own platform. He is concerned that not only will this generation perhaps abandon him, but certainly the next generation, the children of these to whom he's offering these calves, Will, will, will turn their hearts away uh, from him. And that tells us something significant about everything he does. He's not really motivated by worshiping the Lord at all, at least not primarily. 
He's concerned about himself, and that drives everything he does. We might also say this, that even Jeroboam's concern for convenience is itself a corrupting concern. He's concerned for himself and his own platform. He's also concerned for the convenience of the people, and that's why he sets things up the way he does, and yet it ultimately leads the people into great sin. He's concerned with democratizing it, giving more people a voice in the public worship of God. But again, this too is shown to be a sin, not just for him, but a sin that ensnares all the people. In fact, the real giveaway in this text comes at the beginning and at the end. You see at the beginning in verse 26, it says, Jeroboam said in his heart, and then in verse 33 at the end when it's describing the new calendar and the new feast that Jeroboam set up, it says this was a feast that he had devised with his own heart. Now this might initially surprise us, uh, maybe even confuse us, because after all, if there's one thing we seem to agree on, particularly in the area of public worship, is it's something that comes from our heart. And there is something to that, of course. The Lord condemns those who with their lips honor him, but with their hearts do not honor him. So in that sense, worship is meant to be heartfelt, but the the way in which we worship God, the way in which we approach him in public and private worship, oh, it can never be from our own hearts. It has to be from the word of God. And one thing we see with Jeroboam is all of it from beginning to end, no matter how superficially wise no matter how much the people might have loved it, is from his own heart. This is really underscored in the Hebrew text. It's a little difficult to see this in the English, but in the Hebrew text in verses 31 to 33, the word to make or made is used eight times just in these three verses. It says that Jeroboam made houses. Jeroboam made priests. Jeroboam made a festival. Jeroboam went up on the altar. And again, the Hebrew term that's used there is is something like he he did go up himself. There were calves which he had made, the text tells us. High places that he had made. An altar he had made. And a festival that he had made. All of it came from Jeroboam's own heart. And you see, that's the, that's the giveaway in the text, that all of this is not only something that points to Jeroboam's sin, but it's something that leads the people into great and grievous sin. You know, that's the next thing we need to note about this text. This text might be unfamiliar to you, but it's actually a text and an event that gets cited again and again and again throughout First and Second Kings. In fact, this event, Jeroboam's sin, however he might have explained it, however he might have uh, even deceived himself into thinking it was well-intentioned, Jeroboam's sin causes permanent division among the people of God. Jeroboam's sin, more importantly, causes multi-generational confusion among God's people. 
could look at 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 15, 1 Kings 16, 1 Kings 21, 22, 2 Kings 3, 10, 13, 15, 17, on and on. All of them mention explicitly Jeroboam's sin with the golden calf. And those, that sin in, in creating these calves and bringing the people to worship the Lord in this way is a sin that sets the course for this northern kingdom of Israel. You know I, know, I know we're entering an election year which is fraught with all kinds of tension. And one of the tensions that people feel, particularly when there's going to be any kind of political change of, of any kind, is they, is they start to think, well, what about my children? And in fact, politicians, of course, appeal to this. You need to think about your children, think about the next generation. But, but I will tell you, if First Kings teaches us anything, what it teaches us is that the way we publicly approach God and worship should be at the very top of our list when we think about our children and our children's children. How you approach this issue, how these people approached this issue was of far greater consequence than the political arrangement of the northern kingdom, which changed over time. But this worship, this error in public worship persisted and it led the people astray. And the frightening thing about it is that if you had asked anyone in Israel or if you had asked Jeroboam, are you moving away from the worship of Yahweh or is Yahweh still your God? He would have undoubtedly said, no, we are still worshiping the Lord. We are still worshiping the God who rescued us out of Egypt. Did you notice this quotation? There's only one verse that Jeroboam quotes in all of this. He only justifies it with one verse of scripture and it's actually a verse taken somewhat out of context. But look at what he says in in the middle of this text. He says, uh, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And this is in verse 28 that, that Jeroboam says this. Now, what is he saying there? Well, what he's saying is that this is, this is the God of your fathers. That this is how to worship the God who redeemed you as a people from slavery in Egypt. Now, in point of fact, he's actually quoting from Aaron when Aaron brings up a golden calf for the people to worship while Moses is on the mountain. Aaron says these exact words. Jeroboam repeats it verbatim here. But the point is, that Jeroboam was, was trying and the people in their own minds were deceived into thinking they were worshiping the Lord when in fact what they were doing was sliding into gross idolatry. It actually in the Old Testament is, is a more significant generational sin than those who just leave the Lord behind and go off and worship other gods by other names that their fathers never knew. Because then at least it's clear what has happened? They've abandoned the Lord. But here Jeroboam and all those under him assumed they hadn't abandoned the Lord. And, yes, that, and yet, yet that's exactly what they had done. Now why is it that the way we worship the Lord is so significant? Why does this sin, this little account of Jeroboam 
Why does this cast such a long shadow over the rest of the history of God's people? Well, I think we could start by saying this. It's because in the Bible, from the very beginning, it's clear how we worship the Lord, how we approach him in public and private worship matters. Uh, If you think about even the very earliest chapters of Genesis, think about Genesis chapter four, which we think of in terms of the murder of Cain and and Cain murdering Abel. And of course, that's that's the, the notable account there, but what precedes it actually is Cain and Abel going to worship the Lord and, and the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice, that's pleasing to him, but not Cain's sacrifice. We don't know exactly what kind of revelation the Lord had given him, but evidently he had given them some so that Cain knew precisely how to worship the Lord, or rather Abel knew precisely how to worship the Lord, and Cain ignored that, brought something displeasing to the Lord in worship. Or perhaps we might think about the very first day of the tabernacle. If you read through the book of Exodus, there's this great anticipation throughout the book that one day God's visible presence will move from the pillar of cloud and fire further down from the mountain into the camp of the people. And he gives them instructions for how to build a tent of meeting so that when his glory descends into the center of the camp, that they can meet with him, they can worship him, and it happens at the end of Exodus. His glory descends into this tabernacle that they have built. But you know, the book of Leviticus tells us that on that first day, the grand opening of the tabernacle, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, enter the tent of meeting and they offer, it says, strange fire before the Lord. And they're immediately struck down and killed. And and, and on top of that, the Lord says to Aaron, you are not allowed to mourn the death of your sons. And the people of Israel are not allowed to mourn the death of your sons because, because they offered strange fire before me which I did not command. Or we might go further into the writings of the prophets. What do the prophets condemn the people for most? Well, it's their their false worship. We could look at the New Testament. When Jesus encounters the woman at the well, that's one of the first things he says to her. "You, you, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Then he goes on to teach her that the Father seeks worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Again and again, the importance of public worship is emphasized and the stakes are on display for us. You know, it's striking if you look back at the heritage that we enjoy. If you look back even at the earliest days of the Reformation, there were, there were many points at which various governing officials asked the reformers, what's going on here? What are, what are the important things? What are, you, what are you actually after in all of this? And John Calvin wrote something very interesting to Emperor Charles V in response to this question. He says, if it be inquired then by what things chiefly 
The Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains its truth. And if you'll ask me what the principal parts are, he says this, a knowledge first of the mode in which God is to be duly worshiped. And then secondly, the source from which salvation is to be obtained. Because they knew what the Bible taught. They knew from negative examples like Jeroboam and from positive examples like Abel and Abraham that how we worship God is of high significance. You know, the Bible does teach with clarity how we are to approach God and worship. After all, we're creatures. He's our creator. So he sets the guidelines. He makes the rules. And what we find is the Bible tells us that we approach God as his word has commanded us, not adding to it, not taking away from it, but actually doing what God's word tells us to do, nothing more and nothing less. It also tells us that we have to be clear that our worship is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be Christ-centered worship. We read this earlier, had it read to us. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so at a fundamental and basic level, I have to ask at this point, are you seeking to approach God in any other way? Do you think you can come to him and offer him your praise or come to him and have any kind of relationship with him apart from the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus? Well, if you think that, you're self-deceived. But Jeroboam and the people of Israel thought they were approaching the Lord. They thought they were approaching the Lord in a way that was better than what they'd done in the past. But they weren't approaching the Lord at all. In fact, they were simply deceiving themselves and falling into further sin and disobedience. But you know, if we look at this subject of worship, how we approach God as he's commanded, it takes us even further into our own hearts because it really gets at the issue of the sufficiency of God's word. Whether you're thinking about public worship or something else in the life of the church or in your own life as a Christian, the question is, has God's word given us what we need? Has God given us what we need? And to that question, the Lord gives a clear answer. In fact, Peter puts it this way. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of his son. You know, what if we actually lived our lives that way? What if when we were planting churches, we asked the question first, not, not about convenience and about all these kinds of concerns and involving people and all these kinds of things, some of which have a place, but what if we, what if we ask the question, well, what, what has God said? What does his word teach? We gather together for public worship and we, we ask ourselves what does the Bible teach us to do? How are we to approach God and worship him? We think about the governance of the church and we ask the question, what is it that God's word says? You know, we often let ourselves off the hook in these areas because we say, but these are, these are difficult things. 
Well, yes, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. He goes on to delineate that difficulty. It's significant. It's within the church having a form of godliness but denying its power, Paul says. But then what does he say is the solution? What is the program? He says, you, however, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. Follow the pattern of sound words, as he puts it earlier. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, continue doing and teaching. And Paul says you do this because, first of all, you can look at the lives of those whose lives have been changed markedly by the word of God and sustained by the word of God. Paul holds himself up as an example in 2 Timothy chapter three, but we could look at others and say, look, there are times of difficulty, but there have always been times of difficulty, and God's word has sustained God's people. Paul said, you can look at yourself, Timothy, and see how your own conversion came about because of the power of God's word. You know the sacred writings which were able to make you wise unto salvation. And then Paul says, you can count on this because of the nature of God's word. He goes on, as you know, in 2 Timothy 3 to say, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. So, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This, this truth of the sufficiency of God's word and the clarity of God's word certainly does apply to worship. But it applies to all of our life. The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's good for all that you need for life and godliness. I love the way Psalm 119 puts it, speaking to an individual. The unfolding of your word, he says, gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. You wanna understand who God is, what he has for your life, how you approach him, how you can be right with him, Will you look to the word of God, which imparts understanding to the simple. When you pray, do you pray in this way? Do you pray for God to shine the light of his word on your path, all the facets of your life, all the decisions that need to be made, all the difficulties, difficult times that you face? What if, what if you assumed that this were true and that actually God's word, the scriptures, were the most important thing for you to study and read and consult and learn from and sit under again and again. What if we assumed that what we need in our families and friendships and churches is actually something supernatural, something from God, and that he works through his word to bring these things about? The testimony of all of God's people in scripture is the same. This is the testimony of all God's people throughout history that, that trusting in God's word won't let you down. The psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And Jesus perhaps put it most succinctly when describing all of life. 
He said, scripture cannot be broken. You see, this is exactly what we don't see in this text. Even when it comes to the most important spiritual issue, how do we approach God and worship? They don't even ask the question, what has God's word said? What has God commanded us? And then we're gonna do it because we know that we can trust him and his word cannot be broken. Well, of course, in any setting like this, I can't have intimate knowledge of your difficulties, of the way in which you need to look to God's word for clarity and strength. Certainly we know in among God's people in the church there are clear ways in which his word must guide and govern us. But it's, it's true for you as well. As you approach God in his word and, and as you do that, what you'll see is that at the very center of it all is the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as we come to his word and look on his son, what Paul tells us is we're transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit who ministers through his word. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, thank you for your word. We need it. And yet, Lord, we so often ignore or dismiss it. May we be people who are guided and governed by your word, who come to you in the manner in which you've taught us and to approach you through the priestly work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask for these things. Amen.